0: again and thanks for listening to Curious Medicine. I'm Christy. I'm Brian. And today we're talking about patent medicines.
1: I don't know if you know this about me, but my very first job when I was in high school was for a nutrition company.
0: Oh. Yes.
1: And we basically sold supplements. And so this reminded me. So
0: you sold patent medicines. I pretty much <laughs>
1: sold patent medicines. It was and this reminded me a lot of that job. So here I am, 17-year-old kid. My manager was 22 and so y'all are
0: just peddling a bunch of drugs yeah, that don't do I had anything no
1: idea what we were doing and i i even as a kid i was like wait a minute this something seems wrong about this and i remember it hit me when a guy came in who was recovering from cancer and he needed something i don't remember what it was it was something about uh some sort of nutritional supplement or something and so he comes in and asking me and his wife was there and they really were he was frail and just and i had no idea what to say i i remember thinking to myself this is wrong like i shouldn't I shouldn't be in this I feel
0: dirty. Yeah, I felt
1: <laughs> dirty and you make commission off of certain items. And so if you push the company's products, you mm-hmm. made commission off of those products. We were taught to steer them towards those products first and pump them up with the the typical lines that they told us how to how to sell it, how to do this. And I couldn't do it. I was like, you know what? Don't buy that. <laughs>
0: Brian, I see a recurring theme in your in your career. <laughs> yes. You've had several jobs.
1: <laughs> yes, I have had several in, jobs. In
0: the healthcare realm yes. where you're like, mm, I don't think medical sales is for me.
1: Yeah, yeah, that should have been the key indicator right there. <laughs> but I remember my friend Cecil that I worked with. Cecil actually told this person that vitamin B pills, get ready for it, would prevent HIV. Yes. Oh, no. I swear to you. And I remember just looking at with the kind of the look that you're looking at me now with. I remember looking at him like, (laughs) no, no.
0: Is it because Cecil thought that? He actually
1: believed it. I thought okay, he so was someone, trying to be, Yeah. I someone he,
0: told him exactly to say that. Mm-hmm. And he was just naive and believed right. it. And it's I, not because he was trying to be manipulative. Exactly. He a, was not being a snake oil salesman.
1: Being a snake oil salesman okay. or just being a knucklehead 18-year-old. I honestly thought that's what he was doing. And so when we got back to the cash register, I didn't say anything, which I probably should have, but he sold it. The person bought it. So I remember we got back to the cash register and I was like, hey, um, you know, that's not really true, right? He goes, yes, it is. And then I realized he was serious, and I'm like, well, where'd you hear that? And he told me about someone who had told him that it does, and it's just not out yet, but it really does. And I'm like...
0: Oh, so scary. Okay.
1: You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't say anything, but yeah, I didn't last long in that job. And then I went to sell books at Barnes & Noble, so...
0: <laughs> I think that was a good career yeah, move. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know what you want there. There's not much I can tell you, you know? <laughs> So Christy, all of this reminded me of what our topic was today, which is patent medicines. And so uh, for people who don't know, what are patent medicines?
0: Well, patent medicines were mysterious drug remedies from the 18th and 19th centuries. And the term patent medicine came to mean really any prepackaged medicine sold over the counter that you didn't need a doctor's prescription to get.
1: So like vitamin B pills? Right.
0: Right. HIV preventative drug concoction
1: that you sold as a teenager. <laughs>
0: okay, Brian, we all know how much you love you some
1: history. Well, I'm going to have you get in my historical time machine. Here we go. Okay. So I, I'm i going to go back because I always start with my prehistoric hunter-gatherer societies. There's archaeological evidence that some hunter-gatherer societies used natural remedies, uh, clays, herbs, plant material, things like that to come up with their own concoctions to heal disease or sickness which was always connected to some sort of supernatural kind of event there was no germ theory of disease or anything like that so it was basically some sort of supernatural cause that was causing you to be sick kind of fast forward that to ancient egypt a number of written medical records exist that kind of outlined over 700 different remedies and medical formulas and incantations and so there was a belief that demons and spirits cause disease and must be repelled and so a lot of these things came with some sort of uh like i said incantation that you have to say uh, along with being able to use a thing. One of the ones uh, that I thought was particularly interesting as far as a medical remedy, and this is a whole other topic, but uh, to prevent pregnancy, there was a um, plug of crocodile dung that was used. <laughs> I just, for whatever reason, I just thought that was quite fascinating. That
0: probab- depending on where you plug that, that probably could do some heavy-duty pregnancy prevention.
1: <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out who figured Talk it out. Talk about abstinence. Yeah, was it the, was it a male doctor or was it a female? Who was like, hey... I got a way to keep everyone away from you. Well, one of the things that they did figure out, and I'm not sure if they were the first ones credited with using this, and it might have been back in even hunter-gatherer societies where they figured out that this worked for whatever reason, not knowing the mechanism. But willow bark was something that was used back then that actually there's written records of them using willow bark which is uh, basically salicin, which today we call aspirin. And so aspirin is basically, I think salicylic acid, if I'm not mistaken, is the active ingredient. I might have that wrong, but uh, salicin is basically aspirin. And so, and that's still used today. Uh, But uh, fast forward to ancient Greece, and then uh, medicine in ancient Greece was interesting because it was divided into temple medicine and medicine connected to physical training, and then medicine of the medical schools. And so uh, where we see a lot of of concoctions and medications being made are are in the gymnasium setting with uh, trainers who were like chemists, druggists, and pharmacists of the day. And so people would go to a gymnasium setting, and they, they had a real belief in kind of what we would consider, I guess, holistic health back then, and so they really believed that taking care of your body and uh, making sure that you were ultimately healthy would stave off disease, and, but there was still a belief that there was a physical compo- or a, a spiritual component to why your body was in, out of balance. But So if
0: you're hitting, basically, if you're hitting the gym all the time like you're supposed to and you're not... You're taking care of your svelte body, and you're still sick is because of something bad that you did, or some, that enough, of, or some kind of, or some kind of, you know, evil spiritual dweller in you. Correct. And so, okay.
1: a lot of times, what they would do is, uh, if you went to a temple, for instance. They would uh, treat you with some sort of incubation where the patient would go to sleep with some sort of concoction that they would use. And there's there's actually debate now whether or not they were using some sort of drugs or intoxicants to be able to get people either really, really high or just knock them out completely. And then you would have some weird dream because you're basically stoned out of your mind yeah and then you come out of it and then you're like you would have an interpreter basically uh you would receive divine instruction and that person would tell you that the, this was a, a, an omen of whatever whatever
0: so basically they give them acid
1: pretty much and so <laughs> you think about how many like how civilization was probably shaped by people who were high off there you know what off of uh lsd and uh, not lsd but acid and stuff like that whatever it's the same thing yeah. right lsd and acid same thing.
0: i really don't know i think it is but i I started to say LSD, and then I just decided to go with acid because I'm not really a habitual drug user. I'm and not either.
1: And I think both of us <laughs> need to probably take a time out and say that LSD and acid, from what I understand, were not discovered until like the 60s. So let's go with hallucinogenics.
0: Okay, that there sounds great.
1: Yeah, that sounds better. So at any rate, uh, if you went to the gymnasium and say you wanted some sort of concoction, uh, you had a cut, you had a, a bruise or even ulcers and things like that, you would go to the gymnasium and say, this is what I got. And then that person would basically compound something for, for you out of uh, leaves and herbs and uh, olive oil and probably some rose oil and something to give it fragrance and just be like, here you go.
0: I wonder if Planet Fitness offers that service today. They
1: actually do. It's called the juice bar. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but um, so people would go there and they would get these these concoctions and they may or may not have worked. So I, I'm assuming if you had some sort of open wound and someone covered it up, you know, I, when I was a kid, like we're both from the South. Right. When I was a kid, they used to uh, if you sprain your ankle and I grew up in Georgia, for people who don't know, uh, my grandmother would put on red clay and vinegar. OK, so in Georgia and South Georgia, there's this really hard. Red clay, yes. And so you would pack the, you would soak your ankle in vinegar, and you pack it up in red clay, and you wrap it up with an ace bandage. It works. I don't know how it works, but it works. So uh, doctors out there would say that's anecdotal, and it's probably psychosomatic, and there's probably some placebo effect. Yeah, but the the
0: placebo effect is real,
1: measurable effect. It's
0: a real thing. So it's
1: very true. But so uh, I have actually heard over the years that there was something to the vinegar, or there's something to the mineral parts. Uh, the soil that could have been having some sort of healing effect on the sprained ankle. Now, if it was red,
0: maybe it had mercury. You might be right. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not a mineralist or a chemist, but <laughs> maybe.
1: Now, I swear I was a chronic ankle sprainer, and I've I've done this a few times. And it is interesting that you can... Uh, it does work. After your, your healing time, let's put it this way, is, is a lot. Yeah, is, <laughs> is greatly diminished by using this technique. Back to ancient Greece. There was a kind of a notion by doctors of the time, you know, remember Hippocrates and, and people like that, that were out kind of trying to identify what we were going to consider academic medicine and what wasn't they kind of looked at some of these treatments and they were like wait a minute time out (laughs) some of this stuff i'm not sure actually works and so they basically were saying that some of these people magi purifiers gypsies and con men were kind of hiding behind the divine with stuff that they really didn't know what they were talking about and so there was something called the canon of hippocrates in the 5th century bce where a group of doctors wrote treaties that uh kind of kind of expanded on this notion that you're kind of delving into stuff that you really don't know what you're talking about a lot of it was uh based around epilepsy which were they considered the sacred disease and uh epilepsy was seen because epileptic people have um uh what's the word i'm looking for uh seizures yeah seizures i was trying I was going to say convulsions but i guess seizures would be a better word. But back then, if someone had a seizure, you were like, "Oh my God, there's something wrong with the spirits who yeah. got him." They
0: you know. are not obsessed, um, you know. Possessed. When s- possessed, yes, possessed.
1: yes, <laughs> possessed. And so the theory was that everything has a cause and a cure, even if no one knows what it is. And so it was interesting that that was identified back then. There was some mention in Roman texts that some doctors charge the most excessive prices for the most worthless medicines and drugs, and others in the craft attempt to deal with and treat disease they obviously do not understand. Obviously. And that was a dude named, you ready for this? Gargilius Martellius. Mm, oh, that. very yeah, nice. He wrote a- scathing editorial about the garbage that was going on at the time. So there were a lot of concoctions that these guys would come up with. And I think that kind of fed into this notion that they were kind of full of it. And so there was something that I came across called a theriac, which was widely used for around 100 BC. And, And remember this, you know, the Roman civilization lasted for a long time, and so this wasn't always the case. And so this is, from what from my research, this was kind of early on, and then the profession of medicine grew in Rome, and then, you know, got better and better. But there was, uh, they came up with different concoctions. This particular one was uh, over 71 different ingredients that included things like viper's, vipers flesh and ground-up lizards, <laughs> and that kind of stuff. And they would use it for everything, from venereal disease to constipation to... You know, there's a point where you're like, time out. So you're telling me that <laughs> the same thing I came to you last week for, for venereal disease, I need to use for, because I'm constipated too. And I'm like, yep. So there were obviously no licensing boards or formal entrance requirements into the profession of medicine. So basically anyone could call himself a doctor and anyone can come up with concoctions of things and sell them to people and say, hey, I got, look what I did. And if people trusted you, that was just kind of the way it worked. And it's interesting that you see that, that same kind of theme as we keep progressing here. And so history another,
0: repeats itself. It
1: does. And so another one, there was something called the De Materia Medica, which is a five-volume work that kind of outlined some of the things that they used to use. And there was one of them, which was a compound of bed bugs, mashed potatoes, with, <laughs> with meat and beans, that was supposed to treat malaria. Yes.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: And so I'm just trying to figure wait, out, like, wait, you say it again? Do you want me to hear bed again? bugs, yep.
0: meat and beans? I no, got those no, no, no. three.
1: Yeah, 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 bed bugs mashed up with meat and beans. And so it was a malaria thing. And so if you came with malaria, and I'm just trying to figure out if the people were just like, oh, let's do some of this. And then some of, of course this, they were. And, and what else could got... they have
0: been doing? Yeah, I mean, I there's mean... no, like,
1: I tried this and it worked. It had to have been like, the guy's watching me. I need to do something.
0: It sounds like me in the kitchen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> let's try this and
0: this. What and and some of this, but it's still not going to taste
1: good. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where they got the bed bugs from, though.
0: Oh god.
1: Do you ask the the client to bring them? Does you oh. say, "Hey, I need you to collect bring your
0: own meat beans and bed bugs." Yeah,
1: or is extra <laughs> if I have to give <laughs> right, you my bed bugs. Right. Bags. So there was another one uh, that oh. was basically cinnamon and something called casia, which I'm not exactly sure what that is, but it was effective against snake <laughs> snake bites and <laughs> menstrual cramps. Okay?
0: Oh, what was I watching? What oh my god, I was watching something on TV. Oh, it was a comedian. And <laughs> that's what it was. It was a stand-up comedian. I, Sorry, I don't know who it was. Maybe it'll come to me while I'm telling the story. But basically, he was like, he got to this foreign country. Oh, it was Nate <laughs> Is Am I saying his name right?
1: I don't know who you're talking
0: um, about. Yeah, he said that he went to, I think, Honduras or something. And he got off the plane. And they were like, which city are you going to? And he was like, oh, I didn't even know that. Like, I thought Honduras was the city. (laughs) I can totally relate to him. (laughs) He's from Tennessee, by the way. Um, But anyway, um, he's telling this story that, you know, uh, he was there on like a USO tour to perform for the troops or whatever. And he said that uh, somebody, you know, from that country said, oh, by the way, there's lots of poisonous snakes. So if you get bitten by a snake, you need to catch the snake (laughs) and bring it with you when you go to get help, because they're gonna need to know what kind of snake you got bitten by. And he was like, so you want me to get bitten many times by a snake thing? Because first of all, I've never heard of this. <laughs> like, this cannot be real. I've never heard of anybody saying bring the snake with you when you get bitten by a snake for treatment. And he was like, and you know, plus, by the time I get there, I'm going to be bitten like 30 more times. <laughs> it is so funny. Okay, anyway."
1: So now we go to the Middle Ages. Christianity starts to take over, right? And so there's a uh, link to illness and religious devotion. If you're sick, some wrong with spirituality. You ain't right. contact You better get God. Jesus. Yes, you need to get you some Jesus. Uh, physicians, again, educated in universities, and they would actually come up with the treatment based on their knowledge and their training, and they would identify the disease and then prescribe treatments, and you get basically a prescription. In order to get that prescription filled, you would go to an apothecary. Apothecary basically compounds different materials for you from uh, plant and animal material and mineral substances. And there's something called electuaries that they use, which were very popular, which were medicinal paste uh, sweetened with sugar and honey.
0: Wait, what did you call them?
1: I think they're, if I'm not pronouncing that right, electuaries. Okay. Yeah. And so these were very popular, but they were extremely expensive. And they contained things, and they were kind of only for wealthy people because they contained contained things like powdered gold, sandalwood, and something called Bezors, which is from my understanding stones formed in the intestines of, of ruminant animals like oxen and cow Hmm. to help them grind up stuff. I think I'm saying that correct. So um, again, how they figured all this out, I don't know, but that was kind of what the medicines had in them. And so they Mm -hmm. were extremely expensive. And so the, the, so the layperson really couldn't get their hands on much of anything, and so they would go to the to the to the church and say, "Hey, I need something, you know." And so, have
0: mercy on me. <laughs>
1: yeah. Or if you did go to a compo- apothecary, they would kind of appease you by giving something cheap and say yeah. that it had it had some sort of spiritual connection. Yeah. And so there was this kind of deal where you would get what they call charms. Which were mm-hmm. uh, remedies that had some sort of incantation, some religious incantation mm-hmm. associated mm-hmm. with them, and so one of them was: uh, if you had a fever, you could get sage leaves that had uh, incantations written on them, and you'd eat them on three days. It was the prescription was eaten on three days on a fasting stomach, and your headache would go away. And so, hmm. but okay, so after three days. Most headaches are going right. to go away, <laughs> right? So you were like, right. "It works." Yeah. And so it's this it,
0: is amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, just starved myself for three days and then
1: pretty <laughs> simple to kind of manipulate. And then I
0: people. ate this sage leaf that somebody wrote on.
1: <laughs> and the medicine shows were really interesting because basically these were snake oil salesmen, which we were going to get into in a minute. But they came up with ways to be able to. This was their advertising. This was their infomercial. Yes. And so <laughs> they have like this this whatever that they're selling you. But they came up with all kinds—then they start to compete with each other because this dude's got a clown, this dude's got—and and so you get into the—this uh, we this, this goes into the Enlightenment, and so these people get identified as charlatans. And the charlatans move from town to town, and they would actually send in advertisers in advance to pass out flyers before they got to town. And so you knew they were coming. And so Circus
0: they, is coming to town. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so
1: you got they, these things got more and more elaborate as they're competing with each other. And so they get these variety shows begin to come up. And so you get um, it. This was identified in the literature that I read. You would get dwarves, apes, parrots, lizards, fortune tellers, all this kind of stuff. I'm not sure if dwarves is is politically correct, but that was the way it was written. Little and so, people, yeah. And so mm-hmm. they would get these kind of show. But back then it was a it was a circus attraction kind yes. of deal. Yes, yes. Um, and Sadly. so one uh, uh, charlatan in Italy actually traveled with something called the Commedia del La troops. I'm sorry. This was in France. In France, and it's so, the comedy show. Exactly. Okay. So, see, my French is brilliant. It's magnifique. <laughs> and so they would uh, they would basically travel with this comedy troupe, and they would get the crowd all hyped up. And then after the show was was everyone was in a good mood, the dude would come out and be like, "Hey, so I got like, you have headaches, menstrual cramps, you know? I got." <laughs> Did what you need. stub your toe? <laughs> yeah, I got what you need. And then people would buy it, and so. Um, In England, these people were called Nostrum Sellers. And uh, these people did their job on the streets of London selling things from the back of carts. And so this is, you see this kind of carry over into what most people, when you think of patent medicines, which we're going to get into in a minute, you, you think of the 1800s and the old West towns and, you know, Mr. Henry's a right. lecture for, you know, whatever. And so that has its, its origins kind of during the 16th, 17th or 17th, 18th century, where they started to sell their stuff in, in England. And they were always ready to, to roll out at the, cause the <laughs> authorities are like, nah, uh-uh, come here. And so they were like packed up or ready to move whenever right. they needed to. And they did the same thing. They sold cures and potions, uh, which basically they would capitalize on epidemics at the time. So there was a lot of stuff that could keep you from getting the plague, keep you from getting cholera, smallpox, which were completely BS. From what I understand, the patent medicines didn't actually originate in America the term patent actually comes from what you would have to get in order to be able to sell proprietary medicines, which was a patent of royal favor, which came from England. And so if you had something that served the royal court, you would present it and be like, hey, I got something for your foot fungus, and you get a patent of royal favor, and then you could sell your medicine. And so. Uh, a lot of these things came over from England with the first American colonists. And so the notion of patent medicine, uh, that's kind of where it takes off in, in America. That wasn't foreign. This was something like, oh, okay, hey, you can concoct some stuff and put it. And at the time, there were this was very interesting. And at the time, in, well, in America at, a, at any given time, there was more than 3,000 individuals claiming to be doctors. And from what I understand, at around the 1800s or so, early 1800s, fewer than 400 had formal medical training or certification from any kind of medical school. Trained physicians were not available in all areas. And so people kind of thought uh, traditional medicine was ineffective, painful, and expensive and risky. And so they basically were really receptive to the idea of a quick potion or something like that that could cure all their ails, so they say because they just kind of thought like medicine if you're uneducated you couldn't read and then you're thinking like okay this is expensive i don't know what you're talking about you're using all these terms that i don't get which is kind of like today yeah you know and then people were like well this guy says he's got mr henry's elixir for headaches you know um and so they they start to become more and more prevalent
0: Hey, Brian, do you know what the first patent for a medicine in England was? No, I don't. For For Epsom salts. Oh, really? Yeah. They still have Epsom salts today. My
1: grandmother used to fill up the bathtub with Epsom salts.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my grandparents were farmers, and I remember them always having like a great big box of Epsom salts. Mm-hmm. But I, I think they soaked their feet in it or That's
1: something. That's what my grandmother would do the tub of Epsom yeah. salts, and then she'd make you sit in the tub with Epsom yeah. salts. Yeah. For aches, maybe? For aches and pains. She would yeah. do her feet with a tub, and she'd put the, her feet in the tub. And yeah. Put Epsom salts yeah. I
0: remember it. it was in the bathroom. Um, so, uh, do you. I did not know that Epsom is a place. Oh, I didn't either. <laughs> did you know that? Oh, okay, not. good. Yeah, I don't I, feel no, so I bad didn't know then. That, no. Yeah, because it's um it's like 30 miles outside of London or something. Uh-huh. Today's Epsom salt doesn't come from that body of water anymore. Now nice. it's like manufactured, uh-huh. yeah, some, some other way, and I won't so get So you could that, go but...
1: there and get legit Epsom salt. Yes, than,
0: huh? yes. If you go visit there, you can see the pump uh-huh. that was there from uh-huh. many years ago. But yeah, that was, um, the patent was granted for Epsom salts in 1698. Interesting. Anywho, so patent medicines were not actually usually patented almost never were they patented but they were very often trademarked
1: oh interesting okay yeah
0: so and i think you touched on it before they were very very profitable so there was a lot of money to be made and it was a very competitive and um they would, you know, say and do anything to sell you a bill of goods, so to speak. You know, there's a there's an association between patent medicines and snake oil. Do you know the story behind that? I do not. Okay, so in the 1800s, there were Chinese laborers in the United States that were uh, working on the railroad, and they were using some kind of oil that had snake oil from uh, the Chinese water snake. And they would put this oil, you know, use it for their aches and pains at night. Rumor spread about these Chinese laborers using this. And I guess it must have been effective because it spread like wildfire around the United States. And long story short, American salesmen decided that they would create their own, but they they tried to use the oil from rattlesnakes, (laughs) which didn't have the same effect. And so of course, now, the American snake oil was completely ineffective because it didn't have the same properties, and so anyway, did anybody die
1: from this, or was it? it I don't
0: know if people died, but yeah. it just didn't do anything. Oh, okay. So okay. probably the Chinese though did. So
1: the Chinese medicine actually worked.
0: That that's what the story alluded to. Yeah, it didn't come out and say that, but that's what that's what it made you, led you to believe.
1: Huh. So well, people must have noticed a difference. Like this is legit, and this one isn't. Yeah, yeah.
0: And then they, you know, and then American salespeople continued or salesmen continued to sell their snake oil even after they stopped even bothering to put rattlesnake oil in it.
1: So it was a complete farce. Interesting. So the term snake oil salesman just kind of became part of the lexicon. Then, Mm -hmm. interesting. Yep,
0: that's that's where it came from. One other thing that I wanted to mention, Brian, was about the profitability of these patent medicines. Was that they were so profitable that during the Civil War, there was a an extra tax imposed on these. Did you know about that? No, I did not. Yeah, so any kind of patent medicine, any kind of over the counter prepackaged medication that you could get without a, a um, prescription had to have a stamp on it, like a government stamp or whatever, because that meant that they that there was an extra sales tax that or extra tax that went to it to help pay for the war they taxed other things like games and perfumes and other things like that but it kind of reminds me of like the gas tax that we pay here in california Mm -hmm. (laughs) fuel Mm -hmm. gas tax and then also like the soda soda tax Mm -hmm. and stuff like that that the Mm -hmm. government puts on stuff that's bad for us Mm -hmm. anyway i thought that was interesting back to the beginnings of patent medicine's Before we dig deeper into all of this, we should say that some physicians and medical societies argued that these concoctions didn't cure anything. So from the very beginning, there were certain people in the medical field that were like, hey, this stuff doesn't do anything. It's actually hurting people, and it's also preventing people from seeking like legitimate treatment. So they were trying to advocate for people not being able to sell this stuff. Of course, there were no drug regulations, which we're going to get into in a little bit. And the ingredients were all secret, so they did not have to reveal what was included in, in them in the early days. And then for many years, they didn't have to prove their claims of efficacy. So they could just say that (laughs) it cured what they could say whatever they wanted about it. Again, we're going to get into that in a little bit. But
1: I think saying cures what ails you. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: So why did these become so popular? Well, first and foremost, people were just ignorant in those days. And I don't mean that in a condescending or demeaning way, but people would just, you know, people just did not know, even people in the medical field, didn't necessarily understand biochemistry or physiology or, or endocrinology and things like that. So people were just ignorant. And then another reason that these became so popular so quickly is because now there was urban living. So people were moving to the cities. And then there was this, you know, rapid rise in industry and manufacturing was taking place. And These drugs, they promise to treat all manner of illness, which is something we've talked about before. Uh, Things like arthritis, mental illness, constipation, like we talked about, diarrhea. I mean, you you could get the same thing that would supposedly cure constipation and diarrhea.
1: That's (laughs) abysmal.
0: So there you go. Foot problems, which sounded mysterious to me. I wondered what that meant when I saw that in my research. Foot problems. It was so vague. And also... Another reason that this was uh, became so prevalent is because many of these manufacturers targeted women and women in the 18th century did not feel comfortable talking about their bodies or asking questions about their bodies to anyone. I mean, they didn't even really talk about it to each other, much less. Let's go to a a male physician because most doctors, well, doctors in those days were just most often males. I mean, that would have just been scandalous to, you know, go and talk to a man about your menstrual cramps or heavy bleeding or whatever, whatever your, you know, problem is. So these drugs, medicines, could be ordered by mail so you had anonymity, so that was nice. and many places especially in rural places there were no there was no access to doctors. Doctors were expensive. these medications were cheap relatively speaking relative to going to see a doctor and doctors weren't trusted like you were saying they weren't trusted or trustworthy. There was no prescription required like we talked about before. Hospitals if you if you happened to live near a hospital, a hospital was a place where you went to die and most of the time, if you went to see a doctor, whatever their cure was, was, I mean, whatever their treatment was, was more likely to kill you than to cure you. So there was just a real uh, big mistrust. And then self-remedies, you know, nothing new there. I mean, people have been trying to self-medicate for, you know, since the dawn of time. People just want to feel better. They want quick solutions. And I was thinking about this for people who don't know me. Which is going to be likely the five people that listen to this podcast because because the people that do know me don't really listen to this. But anyway, by the way, thanks to all of our listeners for listening. Thanks to
1: all seven of you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was thinking about this a lot this week when I was doing this research because I live in California now. And the weather here has been so great for me because I am a migraine sufferer. I've had migraines, really debilitating migraines since I was about 15. And for so many years living in Texas, I'm, I'm from Texas. And I think the climate there, I never put it all together until I lived here. And now maybe this is anecdotal. I don't know. But the weather here has just been so good for me. I hardly ever have migraine headaches anymore. And when I go back to Texas to visit, I mean, I can just like just flying there, I start getting a headache. It's incredible. I think it's the barometric pressure. But anyway, for years, I had really bad headaches very frequently, like between three and five days a week. So I had chronic daily migraine is, is what I had when I lived there. And that went from age 15 to age 45. So for 30 years, I had really debilitating migraines. And I can tell you that there have been times where I've had such a persistent, unrelenting headache that I would have taken. Anything. I mean, sometimes I would have preferred death over just another day of this migraine because it was so bad. So I personally would have put anything in my mouth, <laughs> shot anything in my vein, uh, taken any kind of pill, rubbed any kind of ointment. Try, I would have been willing to try anything on on some of these occasions. So I get where these people were coming from that they were just like, just give me something to, to help.
1: My mother actually suffers from really debilitating I mean, to the point where she's had to been hospitalized numerous times for migraines. But we always used to say that it was kind of strange that her migraines would coincide when we come to visit after we moved out of the house. Like <laughs> every Christmas we come home me and my sister from school, my mom would be like, I have a migraine. I'm like, wait a minute, come out. Well, it's interesting what you were saying about um, about being willing to try anything. I mean, it's, it's, you see how that some of these things are advertised to people, and advertising was a huge way. Well, newsprint, and, and uh, if you look at the old catalogs, I remember I had a history class where we looked at old Sears and robot catalogs, and what you could order in the <laughs> Sears and robot catalog. It was the Amazon of the day, but you could order like straight out morphine. You know, and like that was like uh, there was a lot of, of women at the time were addicts on for opium and things like that. Um, and so they would use really elaborate ways to advertise their products. And so they they really, like you said, preyed on an ignorant public with claims of wondrous cures, and improved health with very vague kind of things. But they would also use these kind of fake testimonials from patients and saying, I suffered debilitating headaches, you know, and I took Dr. Hoggly wogglys uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Dr. Hoggly Wogly's a very good barbecue place. So I just I don't know why that came to me. <laughs> Made but, me think uh, of
0: Piggly Wiggly.
1: Piggly Wiggly. Yeah, I used to love <laughs> Piggly Wiggly. Uh, at any rate, they, you would go and, and you would believe this stuff. And people were so gullible. It was actually very interesting because you look at the ingredient list on some of this stuff. And most of what I saw, most of the medications were fortified with morphine, opium, cocaine, I mean, they just, and it worked. And yeah. so if you're talking about effective medicine, if you take something with morphine, opium, and cocaine, <laughs> I guarantee right. you, you're not going to care about your headache. Yeah. And so, and you're going to keep coming back. Yeah. So,
0: and you're going to get addicted. Yeah. And the little cheerin that you give it to when you rub this oh, teething ointment, yeah. when you rub this teething ointment on their sore little gums, they're going to get addicted. It was, it's really tragic how devastating this was on on some people
1: babies uh there was a lot of of a lot of these medications from what i gather were marketed to children for colic and quote-unquote fussiness and uh, a lot of them wound up killing babies and so it's very very tragic so you're probably giving very large doses of morphine or opium or cocaine to a baby
0: i had a pretty serious illness a couple of years ago and i had to have a really major surgery and i was in the hospital for 15 days and i remember I had a pick line, which is like a, you know, it's it's a central line, essentially. And so they were giving me morphine and Toradol. And I remember the day that I was getting discharged, I was thinking, I hope they don't discharge me until I get my next dose of morphine, because it felt so good. And I was thinking to myself, you know, by the grace of God, it's not me living under a bridge addicted to methamphetamine or, you know, some kind of highly addictive drug because I can see how people could get addicted to opioids and, you know, prescription medication, I could see that it was it could be very easily addictive. And I remember they sent me home with a prescription of, I think it was Tylenol three with codeine. And I remember thinking to myself, I need to be really careful with this. I, I mean, I don't think I have an addictive personality anyway. But, but I just remember thinking, you know this is how it starts it's a slippery slope like you feel so good when you take these medicines and there nothing else matches it you know and when you're hurting like to get that relief and then also not not just the relief though it's like a high you know you're high so not only do you not hurt anymore but you also feel good and so um yeah, it's it's uh, that's a whole other show about opioids.
1: <laughs> well, you mentioned that a lot of the the remedies were for uh, female complaints. Yes, and so laudanum, which I believe is morphine derivative, or it's it's an opioid, but I believe it was morphine. It was mm-hmm. pretty much liquid morphine, if, yeah. if, from what I understand. That was very popular with women at the time, so you had a lot of of addicts that were being created. And it's interesting that we've come full circle with with a huge opioid epidemic from people being overprescribed opioids and then yeah. or being heroin addicts and then going into using prescription medications right. to it get off of be, it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so it's just just revolving door. Yeah,
0: so. you know what I wondered? You know how I mean in the movies anyway. <laughs> you see like movies of like drug lords and stuff, and how they you know, these big drug lords, they don't actually use drugs, right? So these cocaine distributors and whatever, they don't, they're not cocaine users, they don't, they don't use this stuff, you know, it's almost like a moralistic thing for them. Like I'm, you know, I I would never stoop to those levels, I'm going to peddle it, and I'm going to sell it. And I'm going to kill any person that tries to stand in my way, but I don't use it. And I wonder if in those days, these people that were selling it, also did not use it
1: it would be interesting if you knew that that what you were selling was bs or it, you probably didn't you never heard the term don't get high on your own supply
0: <laughs> well in the movies <laughs> yeah i mean from what,
1: what, i'm not a drug dealer but from what i understand <laughs> let me just point that out for from what i understand a lot of the the serious drug dealers they they it's a business and they don't. Basically, they can't trust people that are addicts, and so to do the job that they need them to do. So, I mean, it's bottom line.
0: Yeah. So I was thinking the same thing here. I bet you they didn't use it. And then also one of the things that made this also popular also was like those were the days of temper. You know, temperance came along, and so uh, this was sort of like your legal way of of getting inebriated from alcohol because there was so much alcohol content, and some of these had up to seventy percent alcohol yeah and before we move on out from the advertising stuff there were this <laughs> they used all kinds of things to advertise and you know this was like all kinds of gimmicks and they would give away you know free things like games or jokes Uh, I'm trying to, you know, cartoons, uh, puzzle books and things like that, all kinds of things. And uh, it was also the, this was like the onset of junk mail because they would have all these things that they, solicitation through mail essentially is what it was. Did you see anything about the full color trade cards?
1: No. (laughs) Oh, you know what? I, I did. You gave some examples of those.
0: Yeah. And that was pretty interesting because the trade cards People loved these things. I mean, they used to display them in their windows. (laughs) They would keep them in scrapbooks. They collected them. It was like a real cult following kind of thing. And some of these had like most of these trade cards had pictures of like cute animals like little kittens or little puppies with kids on the front of them or whatever. Um, Some of them had, (laughs) some of them had livestock like horses and, and cows and things uh, to promote concoctions. Get this, that could be used for ailments on your, if you're a farmer, I guess on your livestock and yourself. So it was good for you and your horse. Oh, two birds. Yeah. How about that?
1: Yeah. Sweet. (laughs) I did come across the, when I mentioned earlier about London. And how they would kind of have the moving, be the mobile kind of uh, carts where they'd sell their stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and most people kind of think, when they think of the snake oil salesman, they think of the Old West and the guy rolling in on his cart. But it was kind of the same. That tradition carried over where they would come in, they would do shooting expeditions, whatever, they would get a crowd. That mm-hmm. was the main idea. And then you'd start to sell your stuff. And then so there was always, I think, this association with with um, uh, uh, f- kind of fantastic advertising to get your products out there. and.
0: One more thing about advertising that was interesting is that there were so many racial stereotypes that were used in these advertising campaigns for these medicines. African Americans were one big one. They had a lot of... um, you know, uh, they alluded a lot to slavery and things like that. But then also the Native Americans, that was a big one, too. So if you had a picture of an Indian, and I'm using that term because that's how it's described in the research that I did. But if you had a picture of a Native American on the front of your bottle of medicine, that was like wildly popular because Native Americans were associated with that, those early days of homeopathy and, you know, natural cures and things like that. So they were more trusted.
1: Christy, let's talk about laws.
0: Okay, Brian, so the party is almost over, all right? Because some reporters, which were called muckrakers, <laughs> that was the term uh, given to investigative reporters at the time, they started doing a little bit of digging around and some you know, serious investigations of these uh, drugs, and they were like, hey, this one guy... His name was Samuel Hopkins Adams. He published a series of articles in this Collier's magazine between 1905 and 1906, which really was like sort of the whistleblower on all of this and, you know, alerting the public to say, hey, you know, this stuff doesn't work. It's hurting you. It's dangerous. Um, It's causing all of these addictions and all of these issues. and, And people are just getting rich off of your demise, essentially.
1: Well, it's interesting. I found that in uh, as early as 1870, there were a number of states that passed kind of general, vague food and safety laws, but very few of them actually went into effect and could be enforced. And so they were designed to prevent the sale of harmful and worthless medicines. And so there were over 100 food and drug bills introduced in Congress before 1906, which is an important date we'll get to in a minute, but none of them were ever passed. And so uh, a guy named Dr. Harvey Wiley, which was—he was the chief chemist of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He became a huge proponent for food and drug safety. And in 1906, the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed. And this law basically prohibited the transportation of impure or contaminated food and drugs in interstate commerce and required truthful labels. And I'm going to read to you the list of uh, things that you had (laughs) to— That you had to disclose were on your uh, medication. And anything containing alcohol, morphine, opium, cocaine, heroin, cannabis, alpha or beta, eucane, I don't know what that is, chloroform, chlorohydrate, acetylene, acetylide. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, or any of their derivatives must be listed on the packaging. But uh, I think if people don't really know that cocaine was actually very, very popular back then, I mean, and I know yeah, because these things weren't illegal. There was no regulation. And yeah, even,
0: even doctors. I read that. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to no, talk over you. But I even read that some physicians would recommend the use of cocaine. Mm-hmm.
1: It was very popular, and uh, I mean, there's the association with Freud, and obviously Coca-Cola. The Coca-Cola Company is the only legal uh, importer of coca leaves, I mm-hmm. believe that's still true. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is the the idea that they did have more a higher cocaine content in the in the co- in the soda back then. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, there's that connection there.
0: So there's a few famous examples of this that really you know like rise above all the rest. Lydia Pinkham's vegetable compound. That was a home remedy that was created by this former school teacher slash homemaker. She used to make it at her house, and then she gave it away to her neighbors for free because apparently it worked. Where She started manufacturing this and became a real big family manufacturing thing. Uh, But she marketed her product directly to women. She put her face on the bottle, which was really smart because back in those days, people trusted women, and they trusted Things that they made at home because that was not uncommon, you know, uh, kind of like the the um, what was it? Vin- What'd you say? Vinegar and and red Georgia red well, clay, red clay
1: and vinegar. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, sort of like that. So anyway, she had the trust fact- factor going, but she was, you know, her her Lydia Pinkham's women's tonic contained nineteen percent alcohol <laughs> amongst whatever else was in there. But anyway, you can still buy Lydia Pinkham's products today i'm sure they don't have alcohol in them and i'm sure they they list all kinds of stuff so but i have a few that were my favorites that i that i saw and i wanted to talk about them and and i'll even show you some pictures because there was one called dr batty's asthma cigarettes
1: no way yeah
0: yeah yeah look at this okay so if you're not driving and you have a chance to Google, Google Dr. Batty's B-A-T-T-Y apostrophe S asthma cigarettes. Effectively treats asthma, hay fever, foul breath. <laughs> what did your breath smell like before you smoked a cigarette? If it oh, I can't even imagine. All diseases of the throat, head colds, canker sours. I think they mean sores and bronchial irritations. But my favorite part of this label not recommended for children under six.
1: Oh, under six. Oh, <laughs> right, okay. yeah,
0: yeah. Hmm. Another one was this Ayers Cathartic Pills. The, <laughs> the picture is, oh, it's so strange. It's all these little naked babies doing various things on the front. And it says, a safe, pleasant, and reliable family medicine. But look at this, Brian. It's all these oh, little boy. naked toddlers and, like, one is like wrapping a box like it's a present. The other one's got this box hoisted over his shoulder like he's works for a moving company, but and I
1: think there's a few states where that picture could get you in some trouble.
0: It's just so it's it's so awkward to look, like, look at. There're just so many things wrong with this picture that I'm just like, "What what are they doing? What is happening here?" <laughs> so if you can uh Google that, that's Ayers cathartic pills, A Y E R S. And then there was uh, Dr. Thomas's eclectic oil. And I'm not mispronouncing that. That's like a combination of the word eclectic and electric. <laughs> because people used to think that electricity had healing properties. And it says uh, it, it lists ailments and let's see. Oh, Oh, and it even lists how long it takes for you to feel better. So it says... Uh, Dr. Thomas's electric oil: What it has done, what it will do. It will positively cure toothache in under five in five minutes, earache in two minutes, backache in two hours, uh, coughs in twenty minutes, colds in twenty-four hours, deafness, deafness oh. in two days. Sweet, two days. Mm-hmm. Oh. So that was fascinating, and then. One of my other favorites was the Hamlin's wizard oil, and that was sweet because, <laughs> because it, the slogan was, there is no sore, it will not heal, no pain, it will not subdue, and it was created by a former magician. And the agree- ingredients, among others, were ammonia, chloroform, turpentine, and 50 to 70% alcohol.
1: Well, what's interesting is I went through a looked at a list of some of the stuff that survived to this day. Mm-hmm. And if you want to know some of those names, mm-hmm. one of the most famous is Bayer Aspirin. Uh-huh. They actually came from the era of uh, patent medicines that made it through. Um, BC. This is popular in the South. I haven't seen BC. BC powder. Yeah, BC powder and goodies. There was another one called Snapback. I remember too. It was they called it headache powder, uh-huh. and I don't know what it was, but it was just, <laughs> it was a crushed up powdery substance, and you drink it. Worked though. I remember that, and yeah. so because we get it at Miss Gavin's little country stove <laughs> in Georgia, and so BC powder was very popular. That one survived. Goodies headache powder. Uh, let's see, Dones, Back Pills. they came from that era. And I'm just going off the list that I had of ones that people would recognize.
0: How about, how about this? How about 7-Up? Really? 7-Up, the original name was, okay, I'm going to try to say this, Bib Labelle Lithiated Lemon Lime Soda. <laughs> it contained lithium citrate, which was a mood stabilizing drug that treats bipolar disorder. It contained that drug until 1948
1: interesting mm-hmm. And now i know and this didn't make our list but i know that pepsi mm-hmm. was supposed to be a digestive aid and that yes, was their big yes, thing that's why pepsin, that. the name pepsi pepsin and so people don't know what pepsin is it's an enzyme i believe that aids in digestion yeah vix vapor rub actually was that came oh, from i the didn't know that area. one geritol actually luden's throat drops too and so some of these things i've, I've heard of that were used by like my grandma and things like that but it's interesting to see how some of them actually did survive so maybe yeah the aspirin companies if you really were using some sort of willow bark or whatever in there and yeah. you got uh you got results from it then maybe you could still do what you're doing and i was like hey i'm not lying there's no yeah. cocaine there's yeah. no morphine
0: okay fine we'll take out the chloroform <laughs> and the arsenic because some even had arsenic which was it was called like the slow killer because oh, wow. uh people would would poison people with these, um, some of these things that contain arsenic. They would just give them to them over a long period of time. Wasn't there a drink that <laughs> had
1: arsenic in it? Uh, I don't remember. Maybe
0: it was a 48 Hours episode that you saw.
1: <laughs> no, there was a drink. Absinthe.
0: Oh, uh, was uh, was it one of the bitters, it? like the alcohol bitters, that's still used today and they've just taken away the the... Toxic chemicals that, besides alcohol?
1: I want to say that it had, uh, um, uh, what you call it, uh, arsenic in it, and it was dangerous at first, but I'm not well, sure Well, while
0: you're accurate. looking that up, did you know that Coca-Cola was originally marketed as a cure for things like morphine addiction and impotence?
1: I did not know yeah. that. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Huh. Mm-hmm. So, wait a minute. Wait, wait. Time out. So... <laughs> you got a morphine addiction let me get you hooked on cocaine right yeah to fix the yeah. morphine addiction
0: yeah have you ever seen that tv show i think it's a cinemark i mean a uh not cinemark um what's that cable channel provider? Cinemax. cinemax yeah cinemax. it's a cinemax <laughs>
1: sorry
0: it's a cinemax original it's called the nick k-n-i-c-k mm-hmm. it's about the knickerbocker uh hospital in um, in the 1800s. Anyway, that is a fascinating story about a physician who, a surgeon who was addicted to some kind of injectable drug and he was like injecting it between his toes and stuff. But anyway, it has a lot of historical medical practices type stuff. It's a really, really good show there. I think it's only like two seasons though. It's so disappointing because huh. I really loved that show.
1: Huh. Well, I did do my quick uh, Google search, and it turns out that I was correct. Absinthe did, uh, I think, the uh, a little bit of arsenic actually made the whole concoction. And if, and if I'm not mistaken, if you didn't make it right, you would kill someone. And so it became a very dangerous drink to make. Yeah. I think you can still get it now, but I'm sure that it probably doesn't contain arsenic anymore. <laughs> well, let's but hope yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah.
0: All right. Well, this has been a fairly thorough discussion of patent medicines. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, join us next Read time. Read Your labels, yes. <laughs> Read your labels and be very careful, <laughs> and don't don't believe what they tell you at the drugstore. <laughs>